Hello and welcome to the SB Nation College Football Recruiting Podcast. I'm Bud Elliott, Director of National Football Recruiting for SB Nation College Football. And uh, got a lot of topics to talk about today. Uh, first, some housekeeping. As of May 5th, we are not on iTunes, but I'm efforting to get us on there. Uh, we're also looking to add uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, uh, and whatever other podcast app you may use. If you do have a podcast app that you like, and I haven't mentioned it yet, Go ahead and hit me up on Twitter. That's at SBN Recruiting, and we'll uh, we'll look into putting that on there for you. I think the first thing we have to talk about this week is, of course, because I feel like we're almost contractually obligated to do so, is satellite camps. Since the last time we spoke, the NCAA Board of Governors did indeed go ahead and do what we thought they might do, and they overturned the satellite camp ban. Uh, and so now satellite camps are back on. I've devoted almost two t- uh, podcasts to this now, and, and I really just am tired of talking about satellite camps. Uh, This benefits schools in talent-poor regions, and it uh, hurts schools in talent-rich regions. It also hurts uh, coaches who want to spend more time with their families, and I think it has the potential to help uh, very small schools and also potential to help prospects who are not elite-level prospects uh, under the the logic that, for the most part, elite-level prospects are not getting discovered at these things. like they, They would be discovered anyhow. Uh, but some of the more marginal prospects may indeed be getting discovered at these things. There's there's pro and con to this all. As a media member, I'm not real high on this because I don't want to have to cover a billion satellite camps. And because I live in Florida, you can make a pretty good guess as to where a lot of these are going to be. Um, and, and I've already seen these kids. I, I don't want to run into a problem of dilution where I, I go to one camp one weekend or a 7-on-7 seven seven tournament. And there's four other satellite camps going on in the state in that weekend, and, and so the talent is not all clustered at the one camp or, or the one tournament like it normally would be. So uh, that's per- basically all I got on satellite camps. I know that Arkansas is having one, uh, I think, with FAU coming up next weekend. Uh, I know that Georgia and Michigan are teaming up on one. Brett Belima today on the SEC conference call said he would uh, look into having satellite camps outside of the country, which, which prompted quite a few jokes about whether uh, Brett Belima actually knows that satellite camps are not held on actual satellites. Got a decent uh, recruiting-related chuckle out of that. If you listen to this podcast, uh, you're probably pretty heavily into college football recruiting, and, and, and you may as well. So topic number two, Laramie Tunzel, The uh, offensive tackle for Ole Miss ends up going, what, 13th overall to the Miami Dolphins. I thought podcast ain't played nobody. Our, our, our sister podcast with Bill Connolly and Stephen Godfrey did a great job discussing uh, what happened with that, with with the gas mask uh, bong hit on video, which is, I mean, that's that's pretty serious, uh, serious bong hit right there. And then also the uh, texts that were tweeted out, uh, the, the screenshots of text messages that were tweeting out from Tunzel's phone, showing uh, someone purporting to be him, perhaps him, uh, asking for money from Ole Miss's uh, coaches and athletic assistant athletic directors. Tunzel, of course, admitted uh, to receiving money from coaches, and from a purely recruiting standpoint, which is how I'm going to tackle this and, and how I try to tackle most up on this podcast to keep it under four hours, uh, what does this mean for, for the Rebels, uh, a, a school that has you know, really done some extremely impressive things on the recruiting trail in the last couple of years, despite the fact that they really have never won anything? And, and I know Ole Miss fans will, will take offense to that, and, and I'm with the mindset that if you are competing for elite-level recruits, you're dirty. I don't think there's any school in the country that competes at that top level of recruiting 
that doesn't bend or, or just outright break the rules. I also think it's easier to cheat if you're actually winning games because people in their minds say, okay, I can see why this kid would pick, I don't know, let's say Alabama because Alabama wins all the time because they send everybody to everybody to the pro ranks. If you're a school like Old Miss and you're trying to cheat like that, it's harder to hide because people say, wait, what? Old Miss is going to pull the, the number one offensive tackle in, in the country out of Florida when he has offers from FSU, Florida, Georgia, LSU, and Alabama, and Auburn? That That's that's going to happen despite the fact they've lost 24 games in the prior three years to that happening? And, and it, it's sort of, what, what can you get away with relative to the status and level of your program? When SMU in, back, back in the 80s was doing that, one of the reasons they got popped is because it, they weren't really a national power before that, and they all of a sudden started getting all these studs and, and I mean, they, they were pretty reckless about it. I'd equate it to kind of a speed limit. You know, we know everybody is speeding. There's no doubt about that. But are you doing 10 over? Are you doing 20 over? If you're doing 60 over in a red sports car, well, that kind of stands out a little bit more. And that, that, that makes people take notice of you. That's kind of how I would analogize some of the situations going on in college football right now. Not necessarily Ole Miss, but just as an example. I don't know if this Tunzel allegation that they take money from, from coaches uh, is a violation or not. It actually could be covered, I think, under their uh, hardship fund uh, thing. I have to do some more research into that. But I know some Ole Miss folks on Twitter were suggesting that. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but who knows. If it is a violation, I, I, and the, the question is, is this a separate NCAA investigation? Do the NCAA know about this? If so, what did they know? Uh, and if it's not, then I, I think maybe you could see a, a second allegation, a, a, a second uh, you know, notice sent to Ole Miss. If it is, then maybe it'll be amended or maybe it'll already be included in the one that Ole Miss has, uh, has not yet released. I don't think this is going to affect recruiting by Ole Miss as much as some SEC fans think. Now, I think Ole Miss will probably get hit with some scholarship limitations. Uh, I, I think following the Miami uh, University of Miami playbook where you, you load up with a really big class in order to sustain reduced scholarship numbers for a couple of years is, is probably the right way to go about this. And I'm sure it will affect some recruits because if I'm an opposing coach now, I'm going to negatively recruit the hell out of Ole Miss. I'm not going to say, hey, don't go to Ole Miss because they pay their players. Uh, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to say, hey, don't go to Ole Miss because they're going to get major scholarship reductions. And and I'm whether it's true or not, it, truth doesn't doesn't necessarily have all that uh, much relevance in the world of, of college ball recruiting. It's it's pretty cutthroat. I'm going to try and get that message to recruits if I'm an opposing recruiter. Interestingly, uh, to switch to another SEC school. Alabama uh, no longer has defensive line coach Bo Davis, who was uh, was fired by Alabama uh, after allegations surfaced that he was visiting uh, multiple recruits, out-of-state recruits, who did not sign with Alabama during a non-contact period. And, and that is a, a big-time no-no. The sort of similar scenario that happened, uh, I think in the class of 2015, was that Joker Phillips, at the time, Florida's receivers coach, visited with Calvin Ridley during a non-contact period. And as a result, Florida was no longer able to uh, recruit Ridley, who was from Florida. And everybody knows he went to Alabama and, and pretty much killed it up there. 
I don't know if the Bo Davis situation is exactly the same because I don't know if just visiting the recruit is all that is alleged, and I don't know if the NCAA cares that Davis visited, allegedly visited multiple recruits, whereas Phillips, I believe, if you if you read what the NCAA said about that, visited just the one recruit. So that that that's something to keep an eye on there. Um, and you know, it is the Phillips thing, or excuse me, is the uh, is the Bo Davis thing related to? The investigation of Old Miss? You know, are, are these SEC schools starting to turn on each other a little bit? That's another thing that's interesting to watch there. Oh, uh, one thing on the satellite camps that I forgot to mention. It was very funny to me how all the SEC schools thought these satellite camps were, were just pure evil. Uh, and at the same time, basically had satellite camp schedules ready to roll out uh, by the time that, that the ban was overturned. So if you can't beat them, I, I guess join them. Two other notes I want to hit here before I get to our main topic today, which is going to be quarterbacks. Uh, But first, uh, really kind of closing the book on the 2016 recruiting class, Demetrius Robertson, the five-star athlete out of Savannah, Georgia, uh, eliminated Alabama, was down to to Cal, uh, Georgia, Georgia Tech, and Notre Dame. Uh, I thought he was going to actually go to Georgia. with Cal probably being the second choice there. Rumors were that his family is actually moving out to California, uh, and, and he did indeed pick the Cal Bears. Now, I, I know Demetrius a little bit and got to know him a little bit on 7-on-7 seven seven circuit, a really, really cool kid. I, I wish him well. Uh, a, a unique kid, and I think that's reflected in his choosing to delay his enrollment and, and not, uh, not pick a school on, on National Signing Day when he wasn't ready, when he wanted to see if he could get the test score to get into Stanford, um, which ultimately did not happen. But a, a guy who certainly values academics, and, and Cal brings big-time academics there, uh, certainly better academics than Georgia. I, if, if Robertson's going to play on offense, which it sounds like, he could catch 100 balls for him and, and just be a, a menace in that system out there. Um, you know, I think he could also really play, play well on the defensive side of the ball, and, and we all know that Cal – needs help on that side of the ball. So that, that actually bumps Cal's recruiting class up quite a bit and, and is a, uh, a great job by their staff there with, with, with Sonny Dykes. Maybe they'll end up recruiting a little better on a consistent basis now that, that they've sent Jared Goff to the NFL. Now that they got Demetrius Robertson, that's, that's just a hard league to be in because all those teams are, are clustered so closely together. The other commitment I want to talk about here is uh, five-star defensive end Josh Kando. Out of IMG Academy, uh, Kando is actually a player that we spoke about in the first ever episode, first ever episode of this. Uh, spoke with Alice Kirshner, who runs the uh, college football blog Testudo Times on the SB Nation Network for Maryland and is also a contributor for us on SB Nation College Football. And I was talking with Alex, and Kando had released this top four that he and I found kind of fishy because it was uh, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Michigan, and Penn State, and we both said, where's Maryland? This this is kind of weird, uh, because the vibe we were getting from other recruits in Maryland's class, from, from other people around that program, from around his high school program, was that he was actually really looking hard at Maryland, and, and may have had some pressure to pick Maryland as well. Uh, I spoke to Kando back in late February, and he told me that, that he had no interest. He's originally from uh, from the Midwest. He told me he had no interest in staying down in Florida and playing in Florida. He's now currently 
at the IMG Academy in Bradenton, uh, and that he, he just found it too hot and he wants to go back home, which is what most IMG kids end up doing. And uh, so I, I really wasn't surprised that, that he named uh, those top those four schools because they're all northern schools. I just thought, huh, wh- wh- where's Maryland? Well, oh, big time uh, surprise here and, and a lot of drama. He ends up picking Maryland uh, over the weekend, and that, I mean, it really just didn't surprise a whole lot of Maryland fans. It's, it's hard for these kids to pull off a a true shocker uh, these days, unless they just don't talk to media at all uh, and, and really really put, pull a, a serious head fake. He, he, Kendo, I'd probably give him a score of like 3 out of 10 there on his trying to fake out the media because nobody really bought that his top four uh, was that top four. At the same time, signing day is not in the offseason. Maryland has a long way to go to hold on to these commitments they have. They have several four- and five-star commitments right now. If they go out there and just get dunked on by Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State and Michigan State again, uh, well, that maybe some of these recruits are going to reconsider. Maybe they'll see it and say, eh, I don't know, man. This team doesn't seem quite quite as close as as, the, as this coach is making it seem. I, I don't think they are just two or three players away. I think they're 20 or 30 players away. Something to watch there for sure. Uh, and that's oh, so we're 14 minutes in. Let's get to our main topic of the day which is quarterback. So this has been a huge week for quarterback recruiting. If you want to get caught up on the quarterback recruiting so far in the class of 2017, I strongly recommend that you check out my piece on SBNation.com discussing timelines and and the the reasons for for committing and decommitting behind about 20 or 30 quarterbacks so far and discussing the reasons why they commit so early. And in fact, there are so few four- and five-star commitments left right now on the board that if, if you're one of those teams without one, it, it's pretty much time unless you feel like you have a legitimate in and, and the ability to flip somebody who was committed to another school, it's time to start looking a little bit lower on your board and saying, okay, I've I missed on this kid, i missed on this kid. Let's go down and see if there's maybe a three-star prospect who we like and, and we think has the potential maybe a year longer down the road than, than some of these blue chippers, but maybe he has the potential to develop into something really special. First big uh, commitment noise of the week, Lowell Narcisse, Louisiana kid, dual threat, one of the top dual threat kids in the country, uh, was committed to Auburn for a time, decommitted, then said he was considering uh, Alabama and Auburn and LSU. I think at that point, most people thought that, that LSU was was going to get him, and indeed, uh, early this week, Narcisse goes to LSU. I'm not saying he's a bad thrower, but, but he's also a very good runner, and, and I'm interested to look at the progression and, and the evolution of LSU's offense, because you know, Brandon Harris is not a bad not a bad runner. He's he's pretty athletic. I think Narcisse is perhaps even more athletic. Do you want to take him and run him more? How does that fit into what Cam Cameron runs there at LSU? And will he actually stick with this LSU commitment? Typically, quarterbacks don't decommit all that much, but with a situation like LSU, LSU apparently came pretty close to firing Les Miles last year. If things go south in Baton Rouge again, it, it, unless Miles is actually out, that could be another situation to watch. Uh, the team that perhaps missed out on Narcisse or, or at one time was was looking good for Narcisse and then ended up moving on to a different prospect, Alabama. Late that night, Tua Tago... I, I, I always mess this kid's name up. Tua Tagovailoa, uh, out of Hawaii, same high school as Marcus Mariota, ends up committing to Alabama. And there's there's quite a bit to unpack here. I think the first thing is, 
Well, I wasn't Oregon on this kid. I'm going to talk about Oregon a little, little later in this show, and this this makes Oregon look a little bit less uh, a little bit less pristine here. But same high school as Marcus Mariota, very talented kid. Oregon has not done a very good job lately of recruiting quarterbacks. Uh, they had a huge hit on Mariota. Obviously, I'm talking about aside from Mariota having to go get go get quarterback transfers in back to back years now. Uh, Left hander, about six foot one. Very good runner, very stout, very, very strong player. Hard to bring down, hard to tackle, and physical, yet can also throw the ball. You know, this is interesting to me because forever Alabama was kind of in this, this pro style mold where they, uh, you know, just just don't don't screw it up. Hand the ball off to these stud running backs behind this stud offensive line. Throw the ball and play action to these stud receivers because Alabama just out recruits everybody, but by a really substantial margin. And I wonder where, where this emphasis came from. Is it a Lane Kiffin thing? Is it Nick Saban saying, you know, what, what offenses give me the most trouble? Well, it's actually spread offenses, and, and Alabama's not really running a true spread, but it's, it's specifically offenses with a mobile quarterback. Are they able to uh, defend the mobile quarterback at Alabama? Sometimes they struggle with it. Maybe Saban says, huh, maybe I should do on offense what gives me the most trouble on defense. And this is something that Bob Stoops has done at Oklahoma. In fact, when he arrived at Oklahoma, I remember hearing the story that somebody gave him the advice to go and pick an offensive coordinator who you hate facing. And so, and so he, he got Mike Leach. He, he hated facing that, that the Kentucky spread system back when Hal Mummy was running the air raid at Kentucky. I wonder if Saban is now thinking, I need to, to further incorporate QB mobility in my offense. And now Blake Sims didn't win a national championship Jacob Coker did, and it's not that Alabama is recruiting exclusively mobile quarterbacks, but but they, they really like the Jalen Hurts kid they got in for spring. I know he practiced there uh, this spring. That They're very high on him. I think Alabama is going to continue to be heavily involved with mobile quarterbacks, and, and I believe you can probably trace part of that at least to Alabama's struggles. And look, Alabama still is a great defense. I'm not saying they can't stop mobile quarterbacks, but in college football, pretty clearly you have an issue where, where mobile quarterbacks are very difficult to stop, and it does change the dynamics of the defense more so than it does in the NFL. I, I think Bama's going to continue to look to see if they can sign top-level mobile quarterbacks. And, and obviously not guys who are just pure runners. You have to be able to throw the football. You have to be able to make decisions. I, I don't think they're going to take a kid who is at, as athletically raw or, or well, as, as, as athletic but as raw as Blake Sims was as a quarterback ever again, but I think somebody who's athletic who can also throw the football is, is a preference that, that maybe the Tide's going to have going forward. Moving along to another topic here, sticking in the SEC, uh, Tate Martell, the superstar quarterback out of Bishop Gorman in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, has decommitted from Texas A&M, did so on Wednesday evening uh, late, and Basically said he wants to open up his recruitment. This really does not come as a surprise. Um, Martell had said previously that he was looking around. He wanted to make sure to take a lot of visits, and and he had a huge list of schools that he's seen and and an even bigger list that that he still wants to see, and he wanted to confirm that he was making the right decision. So if you're a Texas A&M fan, you, you probably should have seen the possibility of this coming, combined with the fact that Jake Spavital who was his primary recruiter, uh, is no longer at Texas A&M, replaced by Noel Mazzoni, who didn't really recruit Martell 
at his previous stop. Uh, the, the whispers were around the college football recruiting uh, landscape that maybe Mazzoni was not quite as high on Martell as Spavitol was. I really don't, I don't know either of those guys personally, so that's it, hard for me to confirm. Uh, but, you know, the, the, there's always been some controversy about Tate Martell. If you look at him, five foot ten and a half. He's overage, and overage is a term that, that we use uh, borrowing from, from, from the baseball scouts, and that just basically means you're, you're, you're older than your grade level, and that does matter a whole lot when considering a, a prospect's ability to continue to grow. Uh, who was the last quarterback at 5'10 half or shorter who won a national title? I can't think of one. Uh, people will point back to Charlie Ward, but Charlie Ward was actually six foot two back in 1993, which is way before Martell was even born. Uh, and, you know, he went on to play in the NBA. He, he wasn't that short. He just wasn't very tall. Uh, 5'10 and 5'11 is, is a different story. Of course, while no, I don't think anybody's won a college football championship at, at that height recently, or maybe I'm missing somebody, and I'm, I'm sure people will respond to the podcast if I am. The Seattle Seahawks have a quarterback who went to NC State who's only about 5'11", and, and he won it. So it's not a, a total obstacle to which cannot be overcome, but but it is a hindrance. I, I don't think anybody would argue that, that Russell Wilson is better at 5'11 than he would be at 6'2 if he was able to see over his offensive line a little bit more. In any case, uh, so Martell decommits. Fans, uh, some Texas m fans, maybe some people posing as Texas m fans, Tweet some nasty things at his sister, actually, to which he responds uh, later in the night. But before that, one of Texas A&M's assistant coaches starts subtweeting uh, and claims it wasn't about Martell, but let's be real here, uh, it, 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 it was about Martell. Starts subtweeting about loyalty and, and how, how he, he worries about the future generation for not being loyal and not sticking with things. And this was from a coach who's been at four different schools in seven years. Uh, not necessarily the best look. And in fact, it led in part, and A&M fans will, will tell you that this kid was already going to decommit and was go, going to go to LSU. But I, I'm not sure I completely buy that. And I definitely don't buy that he planned to decommit uh, after midnight. Uh, I think the, the actual impetus for his decision to decommit was this coach subtweeting his friend, Tate Martell. So A&M loses a, a four-star receiver out of their class from nearby Crosby, Texas, which really should be kind of slam-dunk territory for the Aggies. They go from having seven commitments in their class, three of them four or five stars, to just having five commitments in a class and only one four or five star. When I wrote last month, or in early April, that recruits in in Texas were were kind of sitting it out and, and they were waiting for the seasons to happen to see which of these programs, if any, or maybe both, will get it turned around. That's true. But I also wrote that it seems just from talking to a a boatload of elite kids in Dallas, which is more of a Texas town, and Houston, which is more of an A&M town, uh, they seem to prefer Charlie Strong and his staff over the Kevin Sumlin staff. And they they talked about being able to trust and, and being genuine and having the family atmosphere. And several recruits told me A&M's lost two five-star quarterbacks out of that program. That tells me right there, something ain't right in College Station. Tate Martell makes three. A&M was really already not recruiting very well, but this whole fiasco with with their coach subtweeting 
the star quarterback uh, decommitment, leading to another kid uh, dropping them, and then several other kids saying that they wouldn't would, would no longer consider Texas A&M. That's that's not going to help. And, and I wrote Thursday morning. I'm not going to say Kevin Sumlin can't climb out of this recruiting hole, but th- this is this is tough. Uh, I, I actually put the name Tom Herman in the permalink uh, so that if, if that does come to pass, my article will, will be found pretty well on search. But this is not going to be easy for Kevin Sumlin. He, he has a, a difficult SC schedule, also has a game against UCLA to open the season. They have Josh Rosen coming back there. I don't know how many wins it's going to take for A&M to, to be able to convince recruits that that program is actually, again, moving in the right direction. Because so far, someone has not been able to turn elite recruiting. And A&M was undoubtedly an elite recruiter between the signing classes of 2012 and 2015 into elite results on the field. They had the very short-lived Johnny Manziel era. And I think that his failures in, in the NFL and in life are now beginning to hurt a&M a little bit as well because he's not a guy that can really hold out as a super success story there, probably unfairly because what he's doing now has very little relation to what he did in college, but recruits don't necessarily, are not necessarily able or, or willing to always parse that out. This is going to be really tough for Texas A&M. Uh, next thing I want to talk about here was Ryan Kelly, an Arizona quarterback, four-star, longtime Oregon commitment, ends up decommitting this week. I had a source tell me that, that the reason was because he just doesn't have the same vibe with Oregon's new quarterback coach. Uh, of course, Oregon's old quarterback coach, coach slash offensive coordinator, Scott Frost, left to become the head coach of UCF. Where does Oregon go now? Is, is Oregon re- regretting not offering Tua, who, who I spoke about maybe 10 minutes ago in his podcast, the, the Hawaiian from the same school as Marcus Mariota, who is now committed to Alabama? Uh, where does Kelly go? Is, is he going to go to Ohio or Arizona State? Is, is he going to maybe look more at a California school? Where does Martell go? Is Ohio State, USC, Cal? I, I think those are our three options that look. Uh, if, if you gave me those three, I, I'd probably give you all the other schools combined, and, I, and I'd feel pretty good about where where I sit there. Switching to another topic here, uh, following up on the NFL draft, uh, which we spoke about a lot seven days ago in episode number two of the SB Nation College Football Recruiting Podcast. Uh, something I, I didn't necessarily anticipate, and, and I did anticipate that blue chips would just dominate the first round and the relationship between recruiting rankings and draft picks is becoming even stronger, just like it's becoming even stronger for wins because recruiting rankings are getting better. But did you notice all those Alabama players going, uh, going later in the draft than projected? And I think part of this is that – the NFL values different qualities than college football does. In the NFL, you really don't run your quarterback very much. If you have Cam Newton, who's just a, a incredible physical freak, unlike anybody we've, we've ever really seen play the position, sure. But what other quarterback in the NFL runs that much? They're, it just doesn't happen. And because of that, the value on pass rushers is really elevated compared to the value of run stoppers when compared to college football. In college football, the quarterback run game makes it much tougher to stop the run. So having guys who can actually stop the run is more important relative to the value of pass rushers than it is in the NFL. And Alabama has some guys who are just absolute studs against against the uh, the run. Jerron Reed, uh, 
Ashawn Robinson. You know, all those guys are, are studs against the run, but maybe not all that great against the pass. Andrew Billings from, from Baylor. I, I know he, there were rumors on draft night that he had some sort of injury concern, but again, a guy who dominates, dominates against the run, maybe not the best pass rusher. We saw interior defensive linemen without the ability to rush the passer fall repeatedly in this draft, and even edge defensive defensive ends. You, you, you saw uh, you saw Buckner, who's probably more more of a defensive tackle, but, but he didn't fall because he can really get after the pass rush. You know, he can really get after the passer. Joey Bosa didn't fall because even though he's maybe not always the quickest guy, relentless has a number of moves, very good with his hands, and, and offers versatility against both the run and the pass. I think colleges are going to continue to value run stoppers because even though we see all this, all this spread offense and all this passing the ball here and, and throwing the ball 50, 60 times a game in some league, th- those teams that throw the ball that much are not winning national titles. So at the highest levels, you are still primarily concerned with stopping the run. And I think there's greater value on that. So somebody asked me on Twitter earlier, do you think that colleges will place greater emphasis on pass rushers following the NFL's trend? And my answer was no, because while part of your job as a college ball coach is to prepare your guys for the next level, you don't necessarily have to model your team after an NFL team as far as what characteristics you look for at each position. And it's more important to stop the run in college football, I'd argue, at the highest levels relative to rushing the passer compared to the NFL. Good question. I, I, I like stuff like that. I like talking a little, little scheme. I, I like talking... Uh, the, the intersections of, of multiple inputs when it comes to recruiting and team building. Another thing I noticed with the NFL draft, this is something I'm pointing out every year because I think it's important that when we, can, we can make a story that's interesting to fans, gets clicks, makes us money, is engaging, but also helps out recruits. I want to write that story. And this story that, that I've thought about for several years, and I've made some tweets about it before, Short receivers are just not getting paid in the NFL. The NFL is very clear in this. It does not value short receivers. For every receiver under six foot tall taken in the first five rounds of the draft, there were six DBs, one to six. That's nuts. If you're a receiver recruit listening to this podcast or somebody who coaches a receiver recruit or a parent of a top receiver recruit who listens to this podcast, understand your odds. Most players are going to make all of their NFL money in their first contract. Very few actually get second contracts. So while you can point to all these examples of guys, you know, look at him. He made plenty of money. He's a five foot eight receiver. You know, probably some white guy for the Patriots. Cool. How many of those are, are there? How many West Welkers are there actually in the NFL getting paid? Very few. If you're real serious about this NFL stuff and about making football money and football as you're living. Cashing in on that first contract is very important. And the numbers pretty clearly show the NFL is not into these real short receivers. If you're athletic enough to be a top receiver recruit at like 5'10", there's a very good chance that you're athletic enough to at least try out corner. And you might be pretty good at corner. And if so, you could be making yourself several million more dollars on your first contract than you would if you would stay at receiver. There are always exceptions, but... It, it's really not a great idea to, to build your house upon the sand. You know, you, you want to be on, on the rock on those those better bedrock principles and, and have the odds on your side. I just thinking about this in my head, there was a kid last year, he signed with, I believe he signed with USC, Pi Young. Kid out, kid out of Miami. Thought he, you know, thought he was a receiver, told me he was a receiver. I looked at him, I said, 
there are so many guys down here in, in South Florida that that have a real similar skill set to you as a receiver. You know, if he wouldn't, Pi Young wouldn't necessarily stand out among thousands of receivers if you had him all in that field. But put him over there, there with, the, with the defensive backs, where the athleticism level is not necessarily the same, especially among the shorter guys. And you can stand out better. You can get better scholarship offers, which Pi Young ultimately got anyway. He, he's, I think he was listed as an athlete by some services because they also saw his potential as a DB. But there's six or seven kids every year that I look at and I say, why? Why are you so insistent on playing offense? Why do you insist on having the ball in your hands? You're just not that good relative to your competition as a receiver. And you could be much better used as a defensive back. At least try it out. You might be pretty good at it. Next topic I want to talk about here uh, is a kid by the name of Bruce Judson out of Cocoa, Florida. Uh, This story comes to us from SEC Country, which is a uh, website written by uh, Zach Abelverde. Uh, He writes, I think he's based out of Florida or Atlanta, somewhere around there. Uh, Bruce Judson is an athlete recruit. I think he's a three or four star, depending on the website. He's been around for a while. He, He was a very good freshman uh, in the state of Florida and, and stood out. And he was committed to Ohio State. Now, he decommitted uh, later on. He uh, committed to Urban Meyer's Ohio State Buckeyes in January of 2015. Uh, that would have been following his sophomore season. Uh, and then he decommitted October of 2015. So his commitment lasted about, about 10 months. The interesting thing here is his story on why he decommitted. And I'm going to read this again from SEC Country. Quote, Long story short, I was walking in the hallway about to go to the indoor field and work out. This is during his Ohio State visit. He was like, hey, come here. This is Urban Meyer apparently talking to Bruce Judson. And he's on a visit with Richard LeCount, uh, who is a really good, talented athlete who's now committed to Georgia. Uh, Meyer was like, how you doing? How you like your visit? I said, yeah. Then he's like, what's up, Richard LeCount? Are you showing this guy Judson around? Now, keep in mind, Judson is, is committed to Ohio State at, at, at this point. So, according to Judson, Meyer doesn't know who Judson is. And apparently, Meyer really hadn't given him any love and some of the, some of the assistants had. But it seems like from these quotes, maybe Ohio State was trying to distance itself from Judson. And, and I'll explain why they might do that in a minute. Uh, he continues, I was like, Coach, I'm showing him, meaning the count, around. He asked me, who are you? I told him Bruce. He said, oh, Bruce Judson from Florida, the speedy guy. I was like, yeah. He said, I'm glad you're on board and glad you got up here. After that, I knew I was decommitting. First of all, that, that's if you're a, a college head coach, it's really difficult to remember what, what all these kids look like. I mean, you're talking about, uh, as a school, you probably send out well over 100 offers per class, and, and you have kids who are, freshmen, sophomores, and juniors, uh, and, and some some seniors visiting your school. So in order to know everybody your school is recruiting, you, you probably have, have to, to recognize 300 faces, which is not always that easy. Um, Judson says in the article that he should have he should have known uh, who I was, especially with me being a commitment. I have to agree with that, actually. I think that's fair. But I got to wonder, Urban Meyer's a really good recruiter, and he's a pretty slick recruiter. I wonder, did, 
did Meyer really not know who he was, or or was this more of a uh, a plan thing? I, I think there's. I'm not saying it was, but I think there's some possibility that maybe this was was orchestrated, uh, and the reason was. Judson's one of those guys who, who gets rated very highly early on in his career, but I'm not sure how much better he is now than than he was back then. Uh, in fact, I'm going to pull up here some some testing numbers. Testing numbers from the Orlando uh, the opening Nike Combine. Judson, five foot nine, two oh two, as a receiver. That's not a typical receiver height and weight. Uh, and and I was an event I was at, and Justin stood out to me, and I thought, I, man, he's, I, I'm not really sure he's a receiver, and I'm not really sure he's a running back, or, and I'm not really sure he's a fullback. It, I know he's a, a good high school player, but 5'9", 202 is, is not, a, not a receiver build. Not, not one for Ohio State. Uh, and then he, uh, I look at his testing numbers here. 40-yard dash, 4.73. Shuttle time, 4.4. Vertical, only 30 inches, 30.6. You know, I, I'm, I'm, my thoughts on, on dropping commitments is pretty well known. Uh, I think that it's okay to do so if the kid is provided with ample time to consider his other options, meaning that you really, if, if you drop a kid after Christmas, you're, you're putting him in kind of a bind because he, he may not have time to take all his official visits to, to reestablish relationships with coaches. But to start letting the kid down easy and, and maybe not, not calling him as much, maybe, maybe uh, you know, not, not putting the press on him to stay committed 18 months out, I got no problem with that. And after seeing Judson, I can I kind of see why uh, and and his and this is not just my opinion of him. The rating services have been dropping his rating like a rock. Uh, I, I know his, his forty on some of the websites is listed at four four one. I don't know what event that was from. It's four seven three on his Nike page. Uh, but if if you look at it, his his ranking history here, at least by two four seven sports, uh, at one point back in. I think that's December of 14. He was rated as a as a top 250 player. Uh, now he's rated number 467 in the country. So he he's dropped almost two spots. 247 dropped him down to a uh, a rating of 87, which is on a, a hundred point scale, uh, and dropped him out of the top 50 in Florida. This is a good example that. While coaches can't officially comment on recruits, a lot of time when a recruit claims something in the media, it's not always necessarily the the full story, or sometimes it's just not getting at the, the coaching staff's opinion of a player. And I, I've met Bruce a few times. I, I like him, uh, and I think that he's going to find a home at a, a lesser school, and and will succeed there. I, I know he claims offers from a a bunch of different schools, including. Uh, Florida, South Carolina, Ohio State, Alabama, Arizona, Auburn, Clemson, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisville, Maryland, Miami, Mississippi State, Nebraska, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, Rutgers, etc., UCF. I'm not sure how many of those schools would actually accept a commitment from a five foot nine, 202, 203-pound receiver right now, but, but I think the one that does 
is going to be a good fit for Bruce because they're going to value him as a player and they're going to find a way to work him into their offense. He's not just going to be an afterthought if he goes to that school. All right, it's uh, time for questions. If you tweet questions at me at, at SBN Recruiting, I will try to answer them this week or each week. Please do uh, hashtag them with like Recruitcast or just say, hey, question for the podcast or something. Uh, question here comes from Hail to the Victors. How do schools recruit while their coach is on the hot seat? And he has parentheses A&M and Penn State. Is it really that much tougher to sell their message? That's a good question. Uh, thank you, Brandon, Brandon Reed, for that. I, it is more difficult to do so because it, for two factors. One, recruits are, are not necessarily stupid. They want to know that the place they're going to commit to, commit to is going to have some stability for the three or four or five years that they're going to be in that program. They, they want relationship stability. They, they want to know the guy, if I, got, if I got trouble, if I got a problem, I want to go into the office and see the same guy. I want to, I want to have that guy who knows my background story, who knows my mom, who knows my dad, who knows my high school coach, who knows where I came from, what I came through to get here, and understands me. That's important. That's that's something really important, I think. People who tell these kids to commit to a school and not to a coach are, are missing that when they say that. The kids also want certainty as far as scheme. You know, I, I, who was the kid who committed to... Oh, shoot. Where was it? Uh... I'm trying to remember now. I think to Michigan first and then had to transfer and, and he went somewhere else. And, and like when he committed to Michigan or he was at Michigan and then they got Rich Rod in there who, who ran a scheme. It didn't fit him at all. And then they had, then he transferred somewhere else and almost immediately they hired a new coach too, who also didn't fit his game. There are nightmare stories like that out there where a good player is just victimized because he's not able to fit into the scheme of the new coach that, that the school hired, especially when, when you go, on the offensive side of the ball, and you go from a heavy pro-style scheme to a heavy spread scheme. So you want that scheme certainty. You want that relationship certainty. If I'm an opposing recruiter and I'm on good footing, I'm hammering the hell out of this message. I'm saying, uh, why would you commit there? You may like the school. You may like the campus, the, the major. Some of your buddies from high school were going there, whatever. If they lose another six, seven ball games, that staff is done. And you have no idea what they're going to bring in. I don't care what those coaches tell you. Look, man, we have stability. We've been winning 10-11 ball games a year. Why, why gamble with your future? Take something that's more certain. Take, take, you know, take the rock. Don't, don't build your house upon the sand there that, that is that shaky uh, future. So if you're a coach at that school that's on the hot seat, that's what you got to recruit against. And that message really works with parents, too. They're like, yeah, you're right. This guy could get fired really easily, let's make sure we go to a school where there's more certainty in the head coach and coaching situation. Our next question here is, is really kind of off the beaten path as far as recruiting, but if you ask it, I'll, I'll try to answer it, especially if we don't have a whole lot of questions this week. And it comes from uh, Tom Danielson, uh, wide right, natty light reverend. And he says, uh, should Iowa State fans be legitimately optimistic about the start of the 2017 class, or is it just more of the same but earlier. Uh, and what this is getting at, Iowa State, and this is very early on, and if you've listened to me before, you know I don't really give a flip about recruiting rankings this early on, but it, it is interesting to see some of the buzz generated by programs who do not typically recruit all that well. Iowa State is third in the Big Ten, in recru- or in the Big 12, in recruiting right now, behind Oklahoma, 
and Texas. They have 10 commitments, and they're all three stars. But if three stars at Iowa State are, are pretty good for a program that, that often has to load up on two-star types. I didn't think the old staff was necessarily all that bad at recruiting. I, I just think that's a program that, that you know, chews up and spits out coaching staffs because I don't think you can really win big there consistently. I think you may catch lightning in a bottle for a year and, and exceed expectations, but I think for the m- most years you should expect to have a losing record at Iowa State and oftentimes a, a bad losing record. But I'll give this staff credit. They, they're out there. They're aggressively pursuing players that other schools want. They're trying to get more athletic. They have a very young, energetic coaching staff that Matt Campbell ha- has brought on there. I don't know how, this, how old these guys are. I, I have a general idea. But if you pull up Iowa State's page, right, Eli Rashid, defensive line coach, looks pretty young. Tom Manning, offensive coordinator, offensive line, looks pretty young. DK McDonald doesn't look very old. Alice Gilles, their, their tight ends coach slash recruiting coordinator, looks like he could be my age. Uh, you know, John Heacock, their defensive coordinator, looks a little older. But that, that is a, a young, energetic-looking staff who, who's active on social media, Recruits are starting to take notice, and they are, much like Maryland's doing, they're not acting like Iowa State. They're trying to recruit a higher level of player because they realize they have to increase the talent level there. And that that can work if you you have a decent season to go along with it, and you can convince kids that you're really only a couple players away from competing a, a step up in the Big 12. If you have another really bad season, then all you can really offer is playing time, and, and you'll probably lose some of those kids, which is what I think the second part of that question is, is getting at. But I'll give those guys credit. I, I think one of the most important things in recruiting, though, is this. Figuring out what level of prospect you should should target and that you think you can actually land. Uh, I made a note a couple of months ago that it seemed like Will Muschamp's South Carolina staff was, was really shooting for the moon here. Uh, and and I, I don't know if they're going to be able to, to do that unless they have a better season than I think they're going to have. I don't think Iowa State is is you know playing out of its league here. Uh, I, I think they're doing a nice job of, of, of getting kids focused early, of of promise, or, or, of advertising that they need players, they have playing time to offer, and I think they have a young, energetic coaching staff that's going to connect with guys. If they can put together some wins on the field this fall, I think they have a decent shot to hold on to a number of those guys. Now, if one blows up and, and it turns out that he keeps growing a lot this summer and, and early into his senior year and maybe he's 15 pounds bigger, well, then maybe they should expect to lose that kid to a Texas or an Oklahoma when they come calling. But I like the foundation they've started. They're doing a good job here. One other thing I think I would note before, before I end this, and, and it's on Iowa State, they seem to be really focusing quite a bit on players from the Midwest. And, and I know last the, the previous staff tried to, tried to really go into some talent hotbeds, go into Florida and, and places like that and get some kids. There's some merit to that strategy. There's also merit to, to staying home. The, one of the positives about the strategy of going out of state and, and going far away is you can probably get a higher level of talent. But but you also maybe have a higher, higher bus factor there because you, you don't hear quite as much about those kids. You don't know if one kid is, is kind of a, a bad kid, if he's a, if he's a criminal, if, if he's a guy that you don't want in your locker room. If you're a D1 level player in the state of Iowa, people probably know you. People probably know how you're like, and, and you're probably more likely to get accurate feedback on him for, from those players as a coaching staff. Uh, and so maybe you know which ones to go after, which which ones to avoid. I, I look over this list, I see one, two, three, 
for five players from, from Iowa, another uh, Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, uh, Michigan, one from Texas, and, and then one, one from Ohio. I don't know if you can build a consistent Big 12 winner out of players simply from Iowa, but I do think that it is possible to, to overexert yourself nationally to where you're seeing athletic talent, but maybe you're not getting some of the intangible, or maybe you're not nailing down some of the intangibles that you otherwise could nail down if you stayed a little bit closer to home. And you have to own your backyard first. Iowa's coming off a great season. They're probably going to be pretty good again. And Iowa State is challenging them right there. So for this week, I'm going to check one more time for questions. It looks like uh, that is, uh, yep. Looks like that's the last question that we got for this week. Enjoyed it, guys. 48 minutes and 45 seconds. Please make sure to uh, rate and review us on iTunes whenever we actually do come out on iTunes and uh, share this with your friends if you've enjoyed. If you have, if you have some guests you want me to have on the show, you can also ask about that. I'll see if I can line them up, probably get them on here. Take care, y'all.